Slate's Negotiation Academy is brought to you by FedEx. FedEx does more than shipping. They offer businesses a range of valuable solutions. Explore the solutions at fedex.com slash solutions that matter. Hi, I'm Jill Barche. I'm a business reporter. And I'm Seth Stevenson. I'm a Slate contributor. Welcome to Slate's Negotiation Academy. Seth and I both took a semester-long class on negotiation at Columbia Business School. We faced off against MBAs every week, and we learned the techniques they'll be using when they graduate and start negotiating big business deals across the conference table. Now we're going to pass on this hard-earned wisdom to you. Basically, we let these ruthless MBA types eat our lunches so it doesn't have to happen to you. Seth, why did you take this class? Well, at first, my goal was pretty pragmatic. I wanted to make more money. I figured I could negotiate a better salary for myself whenever I took on a feature story from an editor. In the past, I felt like I was coming out on the losing end of every negotiation I got involved in, and I thought I could learn some tips and tricks and get better at it. And now, after this class, I actually am excited to go into negotiation. I feel like I have the upper hand. I feel like I know what I'm doing, and I think I've gotten better results. Uh, so I'm hoping that this podcast will help other people feel the same way. I took the class because I used to work at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and I had an office romance, which I'm making public now for the very first time. And I learned how much money he made. And I and the differential between his salary and my salary. And I sort of feel like I've been screwed on salary negotiations my whole life. And I really wanted to negotiate those a little bit better. Once we got into the course, I started to see negotiation everywhere, though. I started to see it in my everyday life. You know, it's not just things like salaries and buying houses and buying used cars. You are having negotiations in your life all the time. And it's important and interesting to think about your own personality and how it fits into your negotiating style and how you can best go about getting what you want. And what I learned during this course are there are some basic, simple things that we can all do in every negotiation that's going to skew it in our favor. And we're, we're going to get to one of these right away in this episode and throughout this podcast series. There are these little things that I think each and every one of us can use. And even if you don't want to be using these MBA techniques yourself, you'll at least know when they're being done to you. So let's jump into it. The negotiation really starts when somebody names a number. And the question is, do you want to name a number first or do you want to sit back and wait and let the other guy name a number? So let's say you're shopping for a used car, and you find a 1996 Ford Taurus in the classifieds, and go out to the guy's house, and there it is in the driveway, there's the guy, he's standing in front of his 1996 Ford Taurus, and you walk right up to him. Now, are you going to name the price you want to pay for that car, or are you going to wait and let that guy tell you how much he's asking for the car? So in the past, I always thought I talked too much, and that when things are serious, like money out of my pocketbook, I should keep quiet for a little bit and collect some information. So I always let the other person go first and make a counteroffer. Yeah, I've always been the same way. I, I'm constantly negotiating word rates with magazine editors. As a freelance journalist, every time I write an article, I need to figure out how much I'm going to get paid per word. And my strategy has been to let the editor name a number first and then, you know, sly me. I'm going to come over the top of that and name a higher number. And it always feels like a little bit of a victory because there was the initial offer from them and I got something more than that. I feel great about myself. 
turns out I shouldn't feel so great about myself. Uh, we were both doing it totally wrong. Right. Social psychologists and behavioral economists have done the research that underlies the negotiation class we've done. And the leading person to talk about how to psychologically shift the brain of your opponent in your favor is a man named Dan Ariely down at Duke University. And I decided to ask him how this works, how saying a number first and repeating it skews the whole negotiation in your favor. When you start any discussion, it's not clear what's the value of a product. Uh, How much is it worth? Well, it turns out we really don't know. The extent to which we don't know is really quite quite impressive. So what happens when we don't know? We basically cling to a starting point. Which starting point? Whatever we're given. So I'll give an example from the consumer domain product. Think about the first iPhone. When the first iPhone was introduced, it was introduced at $600. And then quickly they said, oh, sorry, 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 it's only $400. If you think about it, here's a new product. You don't know how to evaluate it, right? You can swipe your finger on it. You can pinch and expand. But it's not clear how, how much value is it, how much money should you pay for something like this. So in this world in which you don't know how to value things, what do you do? You look at starting points. Well, in this case, what's the starting point? It was $600. So in a world in which the iPhone started $600 and then quickly goes down to $400, you say to yourself, my goodness, what a great product in such a cheap, reasonable price. But in a world in which it started $400, all of a sudden you say, well, I'm not sure if this is a good price or not. I have nothing to compare it to. So the discussion basically is all in relative terms, and we need to find relative to what. And the people who start um, defining the conversation basically control that. And he started to tell me about a, a study he did right in his MBA classroom where he told them to write down the last two digits of their Social Security number. I mean, mine is 74. Mine is 95. Mine was 79. Somebody else might be 12. And then we say, okay, now look at those six products. They were wine, they were chocolates, computer accessories, books. And we say, tell us whether you would pay the equivalent amount of dollars to your last two digits of your Social Security number. So would I pay $79 for each of those things? And would somebody else pay $12 for each of those things and so on? So they're all staring at these two-digit numbers. Yeah. So when they finished, we said, okay, thank you very much. This was just hypothetical. Now we want you to tell us what, how much you would bid on each of those items in an auction. So people placed their bids. They paid with real money. They got the product. Everybody went home. And then we calculated how connected were the social security number to their bid? And basically, the people with high-ending social security number ended up paying much more than people with low-ending social security number. Now, it sounds crazy. Why would that ever happen? Well, exactly for the same reason we talked about earlier, is if you start with a number that is 79, and you say, oh, will I pay $79 for this? The next time you start talking about the same product, you don't start from scratch. You said, oh, I remember thinking about this in the $79 range. I said $79 was too expensive, so maybe I'll pay 62 But <clears throat> despite the fact that the $79 was irrelevant, you still think of it as a good starting point. And that's what controlling the conversation and controlling the starting point really uh, gets people. It's like some kind of psychological voodoo where you say a number and the 
it gets imprinted in your brain and it gets imprinted in your adversary's brain and you can't get it out of your heads. And so it's like if you're looking for this 1996 Ford Taurus and you don't want to spend much money on it. So you say $1,000. Isn't $1,000 a good price for it? Oh, $1,000 is the best number in the world. And it doesn't matter if you don't really think that's going to be the price at the end of the day, but it steers the negotiation toward the low end of the spectrum. It just frames the entire negotiation. And so rather than be passive and sit back and let the other person name the first number, you want to be aggressive and get out front with your number. But how do you decide what number to say? Well, our professor at Columbia told us to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. So here I am, the buyer of the Ford Taurus, and Seth is the seller. I'm imagining what is the lowest number that he would possibly accept. On the internet, it says that this car is worth approximately 1500 So I'm guessing that he will not part from this car for less than 1000 And then what I do is I pick a number that's just even a smidge lower than that say $900. So I would walk into his driveway and say $900. Was that, do you agree with that? Oh, make it 800 Jill. Why not get, get a little bit more aggressive with it? Why not? So if you think uh, the least I would ever take for this car is $1,000, I say maybe even offer $750. Because what you're doing is anchoring that in my mind. And maybe me as the seller, I'm thinking, oh, that's crazy. I would never accept that amount. But there's that number in my brain. And we know that the anchoring bias means that it's going to affect how the rest of the negotiation plays out. Why not just say 100 bucks? Okay, if you name a price that's too low, I'm going to say, you're nuts, lady. Get out of here. I'm going to laugh you off my driveway. So you can't do that. You need to do something reasonable, but just on the other side of what you think the other guy's walk away point is, the point where he'll say, now that's too low, I can't do it. Now, there are some exceptions to this advice. All this on the Ford Taurus was based on the premise that you had done some research ahead of time and you knew what the marketplace was. You'd looked at Kelly Blue Book, you'd looked at some other internet sites, you saw what people are asking for on Craigslist. What if you don't know anything about what you're bidding on? Right. If you don't know anything, there are some risks, right? Because let's say you've inherited from your grandmother a set of... uh, I inherited a fine set of porcelain teacups from Bohemia. Okay. And I happen to be an expert connoisseur of Bohemian porcelain teacups. And I come in to your estate sale, and you haven't had time to do research on the value of Bohemian tea surfaces. And you don't know anything about them, but you're trying to get rid of all this stuff. And here I come, and what what are you going to ask me for this? Uh, I don't know, 100 bucks. Sold. I'll take them. Oops. Yes. Now you're not feeling so great about yourself. I seem pretty happy about that deal. That's known as the winner's curse, where you got the number you asked for, but it wasn't the number you wanted, really. So the way to handle this is when you don't know something and you kind of suspect that the other side has some more knowledge than you do, that's when you do hold back and let them say the first number. So if we were to play this over again, and I'm selling my porcelain teacups, you would ask me the price. I'm not sure. What are you going to pay? $3,500. Sold. <laughs> no, Jill, ask for more. <laughs> have you learned nothing from this negotiation course? <laughs> I have this problem. <laughs> so what did we learn today, Jill? Well, the main point is that generally in a negotiation, you want to be the one to say the price first, the opening offer. And it doesn't matter if you're the buyer, the seller, the renter, the landlord, the husband or the wife. You want to get your word in first because it psychologically changes the tone of the whole negotiation and you're more likely to get a price or a result that's more to your liking. 
And of course, that's contingent on you doing some research before you get to the negotiation. You want to figure out roughly what this thing's worth before you name a number first. If you haven't done that, if you don't know anything about what it's worth, well, in that case, maybe wait and let the other guy name a number first. Next week, we'll really be going back to the beginning, what you should be doing in a negotiation even before you make the opening bid. It turns out that even before that first number is named, there's a whole host of other things you should be thinking about to strategize your negotiation. And if you're a chit-chatty type, you're in luck. It involves a lot of chit-chatting. Schmoozalicious. <laughs> See you next week. We welcome your feedback on this podcast. Our address is podcasts at slate.com. The producer is Mark Phillips. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is me, Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening.